from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Hussein Adieh on June 8, 2015. Hussein, in collaboration with Hillary Chapman, is the author of Awakening, A History of the Babi and Baha'i Faiths in Nariz, an inspiring chronicle of the bloody birth of the Babi movement in Nariz, Persia, and its trying evolution into the city's Baha'i community a community that has grown to be the world's second most widespread religion. Hussein is also working on publishing two other books. One is on Tahereh, a renowned 19th century Persian poetress that became a force to be reckoned with for the Babi faith. She was ultimately killed for her outspoken proclamation of the Babi faith. And finally, Hussein is working on publishing a book on Abdu'l-Bahá, the son of the prophet founder of the Baha'i faith, Baha'u'llah. The book will focus on Abdu'l-Bahá's time in America, especially when he was in New York City. I started the interview by asking Hussein where he grew up and what was it like growing up there. I was born in the small village in southern part of Iran. I prefer to call it Persia, because when you say Persia, you think of a Omar Khayyam, you think of the old glory of Persia, you think of the Persian rocks, Persian cats. Mm-hmm. But when you say Iran, right away, you think of uh, all the difficulties and problems that we are facing these days because of that country's rulers and what they're doing. So uh, I was born in the southern part of Persia, a small town called Neiriz, which is in the province of Fars. It was not really that significant uh, place geographically or historically, but because what took place in the middle of 19th century and the massacre and genocide of the Babis took place, it has become a known uh, place throughout the Baha'i and non-Baha'i history. Mm -hmm. What's your religious background growing up? I was born into a Baha'i family. Mm -hmm. My ancestors, during the time of the Bab, Mm-hmm. Uh, they became Babi. They were mm-hmm. uh, mostly religious leaders, mullahs, and what they call it, ayatollahs. So I would yeah. say I am, I think, between sixth-generation Babi Baha'i. Uh, even though in the Baha'i faith we are supposed to investigate the truth for ourselves and then at an age declare our belief in Baha'u'llah, mm-hmm. but the traditionally, especially in the Persian Baha'i culture, you automatically are considered a Baha'i unless you, you, you deny it or you leave the faith and you don't want to register as a Baha'i. So when did you leave Persia? Actually, at the age of six, seven, my father left town because right prior to that occasion, he was kidnapped by the fanatic Muslims and he was held prisoner for a while and was severely beaten. And so he decided after that to leave town. So we left Nairiz and we went to a city called Abadan, which is a quite a progressive and wonderful city. I have a great memory from that town, uh, from that city. 
because they have the largest oil refinery, at least in that time, in the Middle East, British oil company has established that. And my father was working for that oil company. So I spent most of my teenage days throughout the school days and high school in the city of Abadan, which is a well-known right on the Persian Gulf. As soon as I finished high school, I decided to come to America to pursue my education. Did you experience persecution yourself when you were there up until that time? We left the town when, at that age, six, seven, when I was six. But then uh, almost every other summer, uh, my mother or my family, we would go back to the, that village because they had some property and they had some many relatives still living there. And it was throughout those summers visit and my early childhood, it was quite a I mean, subject of a great deal of harassment and throwing a stone at us and cursing us and uh, physically abuse us. So we went through all that. My memory from that town and the treatment I got from my Nambahai president when some relatives are not very pleasant. The oppression in the air and in the society was so much that when I came to America, I, I couldn't believe it that you can say whatever comes to your mind and you can, nobody would uh, pick you up or put you in jail for that. Uh, I went to university, and I remember there was a politician who came and gave a talk, and he was attacking the government president, uh, and I expected any moment the police come and arrest, arrested him, mm. because this is what <laughs> what would happen in Persia when during the Shah's regime. Uh, it was a really a quiet experience to come from that society. I could have easily gone to university uh, in Iran and pursue my education because this was way before the revolution. And still Baha'is had the chance to go become a doctor, engineer, lawyer, and I had that chance. But I think because of this exploitation and all this oppression and heavy air, I decided that time to move on and come to a free country. And what did you study at university? And where did you go? I wanted so much to become a nuclear engineer. Of course, those days, you know, with Einstein theory, uh, becoming pretty dominant in the scientific field, and uh, everyone was talking about the nuclear development. So I went to a, uh, I think, American consulate or embassy in Tehran and asked them to help me to find a university in America so I could come and study nuclear engineering. I don't think so. They took me seriously. The woman gave me some kind of directory and pointed to two universities who I could go. I recall one was Harvard, the other one was Columbia. So I wrote a letter in my poor English and applied. Soon, of course, Columbia rejected me. But then somehow Harvard accepted me. Oh, if you only knew how my family and myself were happy about this, my father, poor guy, was bragging with everybody that my son is going to Harvard, he's going to be a nuclear engineer. But then I came to New York. Actually, I came on a boat. I went to England. Then I got there in a boat, uh, paid $50 with a typical good old immigrant. It took us six, seven days to get to New York. Landed in New York, and I went to YMCA, downtown Manhattan. And I was telling everybody, I have to go to Washington to find a place to stay when I start my education. But they keep saying, no, but if you're going to Harvard, you have to go to Boston. He said, no, I'm going to Washington. 
then we realized that actually I was accepted to Howard University. <laughs> oh, that's funny. And probably they figured out I could have been my first foreign student who have gone to this university. Yeah, yeah. And they were surprised that I'm coming, but they, they were willing to take me. So nice. I came to America, searched for another college. I did my undergraduate work at the place in New Jersey called Taylor Dickens University. And somehow uh, a guidance counselor uh, convinced me or put me in some engineering track, uh, electrical engineering. But by the time I realized I don't like the, to be an engineer, it was too late. I already was close to graduation. Then I did my uh, graduate work uh, at Fordham University. I got my master in the European intellectual history. And then uh, I secured and I got my PhD in educational administration. Mm. But then, of course, I was involved in running a wonderful alternative school called Holland Prep, which was well-known internationally. Yes, and, uh, and, and, and uh, Hussein, if you could please give us some background and history on the Harlem Prep, because that was really an avant-garde institution in its day. And what year, what, what year are you referring to? Uh, I got involved with the school. Actually, I just finished writing a book about Harlem Prep, and most likely it's going to be published by uh, Indiana University Press. They have shown interest, and they are working. You know, we are working with the editors for for the publication. It's really the, the untold story of Harlem Prep. School started in the East Harlem in New York by a group of nuns, Baha'is, and other uh, black and white concerned citizens. Our main purpose was to place the high school dropout into university. Uh, there was such a large dropout rate among the black and Spanish kids in New York, more than 50, 60%. Arrangement we had was if a child come, or a young man, young woman, come to our school, stay there for uh, one year and commit himself to fully be engaged in uh, education activity, we promised them to put them in the, any college that they want to go, and then we would give them a diploma. Otherwise, he did not want to just be a diploma mill um, in team like this. And lots of universities took a chance on us, and based on our recommendation, they took the first and second year of graduates, Columbia, Boston University, Cornell, and many other 189 colleges eventually end up taking our students. The big advantage we had was uh, securing uh, financing to the foundation and corporation. Otherwise, we did not want to take money from government because we realized that with the government money, especially the Board of Education, comes so much uh, control in terms of curriculum, in terms of staffing, in terms of age of a student. We could easily take any age kid. We had a, a woman who was 47 years old uh, when she entered. Uh, so four foundation, Exxon, Rockefeller Brothers, they're pouring millions of dollars to the school. Because of its novelty and because of its uniqueness, we got such a great uh, publicity that uh, I was thinking if I charge every visitor or everyone who comes to see the school a few dollars, that's enough to help the school. So for 10 years, we saved the school through that, through the financial contribution of the foundation. But then it reached a point that most of them, in particular Ford, foundation, 
they stop funding us because they don't want to be involved with any setup uh, indefinitely. So the choice was to either close the school or go with the Board of Education of New York. And by then, we had about 70 faculty, we had six or 700 students, and these people needed the jobs. So they decided to go with the board, became a high school within the Board of Education. Of course, most of us, myself, Dr. Carpenter, the headmaster, I was assistant headmaster of the school. We went, I went to Fordham University, and we went to the City College in New York. The story is very interesting. Maybe I, I, one of these days we can have more discussion about Holland Prep mm. and what was the philosophy and what was behind the, really our success. We did try, without really proclaiming it, practice the Baha'i principle in terms of running a school, because a good number of the faculty members were from uh, Baha'i faith background, and that helps a lot. How long was the uh, school in operation? Uh, almost 10 years. And the big thing that eventually, you know, led us to this major decision, what to do was this raising a few million dollars a year to, to support the school. And there was no way we could do it at that time. What did you do after Harlem Prep? I went and joined the faculty of Fordham University. Fordham University, as you may know, is a Jesuit uh, college. It's a, one of the oldest ones in the country. They are well-known, one of the great law schools and liberal schools in America. They, get, they became very involved in admitting of minority. And because of my experience with the Harlem Prep and, and my doctoral dissertation dealing with that subject, they hired me to administer most of their funding and most of the activities that deal with minority. There's a program called Higher Education Opportunity Program. And it was a sort of, on the professional level, I was an associate of the university. And how long were you at Fordham? I think almost three years I was, I was with them. And then I did extensive consulting work in terms of helping to set up the charter schools and uh, other organizations that they needed information mm-hmm. about the educational system. Mm-hmm. And then at the old age, mm-hmm. uh, I decided to, to begin to write. And I was so fond of uh, the history of my religion, Baha'i faith, that most of my writing at this point deal with the Baha'i faith. I finished writing a book about uh, awakening, uh, which is the, I mean, about the Bobby period called awakening that has been translated to seven languages. And then I just finished writing another book about Tahere and her contemporary American woman. I mentioned to you that I wrote a book about Holland Press. And then finally, we wrote a book with, the, oh, I should mention that I have an associate or partner by name Mr. Hilary Chapman. And he's been a great asset and help in terms of her editing and working with me on these books. And the last one was a book about Abdul Baha's visit to America, and especially emphasis in his stay in New York. That's also been translated to some like Persian, Spanish, and others. And it's been published by her by Press. So let's let's start with Awakening, a history of the Babi and Baha'i faiths in Nariz. So Nariz is the town that you were born in and you grew up there for eight years. And you mentioned early in the interview that you had a relative 
that was instrumental in the town, I guess, being introduced to the, the Babi faith. Can you please first, Hussein, give us an introduction of what the Babi faith is and then get into the story of Nariz? The Babis were the followers of a man uh, who lived in 19th century by the name Sayyid Ali Muhammad, that he claimed that the expectation of uh, coming of the promised Qa'im in the Shia Muslim sect of Islam has been fulfilled, and he is the one who they've been waiting for. And, and it's amazing that the, this young man soon attracted thousands and thousands of followers throughout the country, many of them from the leading uh, mullahs and mashtahed in Persia. His writing been uh, quite uh, effective and influencing hundreds of uh, scholars during that period. So in many of his writings, he anticipated and he promised that a greater one will come after him. And you know him as Baha'u'llah. The prophet founder of the Baha'i faith. The founder of the Baha'i faith, yes. And so what took place in, in Nariz, the king of Persia, was Muhammad Shah at the time, received the news that this young man has declared his mission. He, he was quite interested and also curious and concerned that this claim of this young man is spreading so fast all over the country and may even cause some serious difficulty as far as administrating the affairs of the, the state concerned. So he sent one of his trusted agents, a leading mushtahed, a leading scholar, to investigate the truth of, of the Bab's declaration, and his name was Bahid. Bahid met with Bab in Shiraz, and through a number of interviews and sessions that he had with him, he himself became Babi. And then he began to travel extensively around the country, teaching the faith of Bab, and he eventually ended up in the city of Neris, based on invitation of many people, including my great ancestor, the following name, Abdul Hussein. And he decided that uh, even though he faced immediately opposition by the governors and others, that he's going to make his final stand in that town. And a bloody upheaval took place in that town, and hundreds and hundreds of his followers that were put to death. And the book Awakening is really begin to tell the story of Bahid and the first appeal of Nevis in the year 1850. How I come across this information, which got me very excited, the grandson of this old man that I mentioned had invited Bahid to come to Nevis uh, was a young fellow, I think 12 to 15 years old, we are not sure of his age, but he was present throughout all this upheaval of 1850 and 1853. Later on, when he became an older man, he uh, walked all the way to Baghdad, and he met the prophet founder of Baha'i faith, Baha'u'llah. And in the course of meeting, Baha'u'llah has asked him to write his diary. And we know this took place. We have the book called Dawnbreaker for Nabi's Narrative. And in that book, Shoghi Effendi, regarding a Baha'i faith, say that the Nabil has also indicated that whatever you see in Dawnbreaker is from the diary of Shafid of Nevis. But unfortunately, this diary had disappeared. 
for life, 150 years, every scholar, every member of the family, they were searching for this diary. So one day when I was in Chicago attending a conference, I was a boring Persian gathering. Mm -hmm. So instead, I went to an English session, and on the screen I saw it's a translation of Shafi of Navy's diary. If you only knew, Warren, that hmm. this was the unbelievable uh, occasion. So I got hold of diary eventually, and I used that diary of Shafi, which is really my ancestor's book, and wrote the, the writing based on that. So I'm very proud of uh, our book. Uh, so Hussein, uh, and, so where, where did the diary end up? Where did they find the diary? Oh, what happened? There was diary, I tell you. It seems there was a trusted family in Shiraz by the name Aflan. Aflan are a member of the Bob family. Whoever is a family of the Bob, the founder of Bob Faye, is a certain Aflan. And historically, they were custodians of all the major tablets, major books, the relics of the Baha'i and Bob Faye, and Soon, my great-grandfather, Shafi, has given the family a copy for safety and security. And he was in their position. Of course, they had thousands of this kind of material, so they never pay attention to it. When the Iranian Revolution took place in 1939, many of these items were shipped out of the country to a state in Europe. When, of course, then some scholars begin to look through the material, and this particular diary was found in the stuff that was sent to America. In Texas, I think, they found it. So then, of course, I asked the House of Justice, the governing body of our faith, uh, for a copy of the diary, and graciously they sent it to me, and I have used that to write the book Awakening. Where can one find your book, Awakening? The Book Awakening has been published by the Baha'i Publishing Trust. It's available on Amazon and the Baha'i Publishing Trust website. Somehow I think the, there is an interest in the history of our faith. There is not really that much serious work has been done in that period, especially the Bobby period. That's why I think all this interest by the student of history and the lover of Bob and the masses who read Downbreaker, uh, and they get excited, and they want to know more about the individual and episodes. I'll be posting a link as well on my website. I have a, a wonderful assistant, a wonderful Bulgarian lady, Tatiana Jordan, who is very talented in terms of putting lots of websites together and lots of PowerPoint together. If you go to awakeningmayreads.org, you will see the translation of the books and then different websites and different YouTube pieces and they're kind of interesting to watch and to enjoy. Up the Nairis.org link that's, as well. That's, that's wonderful. Thank yeah, you, sir. Sure. Did you say you wrote a book about Tahare? Yes. We, we just finished the book, The Legend of Tahare. Tahare's book is to show that at the same time that Tahare was making her claim in Persia. There were a group of women in America who also had the same state of mind and the same feeling. And I went through the whole bunch of them. 
the founder of the Christian Science Movement, the founder of the Shakers Movement. The book shows her poetic ability and some detailed history of her life that I don't think is available in that level in English language. Maybe for those uninitiated, you could explain the significance of Tahereh in the Baha'i faith. Sure. I, I mentioned earlier that uh, Bob claimed that he is the Qa'im, he is the promised one. He is the one that the Muslims been waiting for for over a thousand years. There were a group of people who were searching for him at the time, and some of them uh, came across and met him personally, and they became Bobby. But then this, uh, this woman, who was uh, extremely bright from a well-educated family, quite gorgeous and good-looking, with the mastery of Persian, Arabic, and Turkish language, known for her poetic writing, and of course many essays that she has written, she also accepted the cause of Bob. And what they call it, became, she became apostle of the Bob, or a letter of living. Because of her belief, she left the family, you know, which is very unusual in that culture, for a wife to drop the husband. Of course, she was not, he was not good anyway to start with. She began extensively traveling to Iraq and other parts of the country, Iran, and teaching the faith of Baal. In many gatherings, even though she had to sit behind the curtain because those days were not acceptable to, for a woman to face men in an open session, and who would lecture them and talk about the new, new teaching of the Baal. The famous incident that made her so well-known is removing uh, her wear and the cover of her face in the gathering that took place in Badash, which is a small town uh, north of Tehran, the capital. And it's amazing, this conference of Badash, what they call it, was coinciding with another conference in America in, in the Seneca Falls, when for the first time American women began to demand the right to vote. Uh, and I think there's a whole history behind that. And many historians, Baha'i and non-Baha'i, have identified these two conferences as the beginning of the really woman movement and woman liberation. Tahara eventually was captured and was put in prison house arrest for a few years. And at some point, because she refused to recant her faith at the darkness of night, they strangled her, and they killed her, and they threw her body in the well and covered it. And that was the end of the, the life. What was the last words that Tahereh said when they strangled her? Yeah, it, it, it's interesting that the, in the book, uh, hopefully you will have access to it soon, I have quoted more than 100 of uh, Western and Eastern scholars when they talk about her and her contribution. One of the things that she, they have mentioned uh, was she was telling the her killers that you may kill me and may put me to death, but you will not be able to put the end to the woman's rights and woman's equality. Very powerful story. Uh, Very powerful. Yeah. The story is extremely powerful, and I have no doubt that there's any more books and novels and story and movies would be made about her life. This, this is just my humble contribution <laughs> to the study of her life. 
you said you also wrote a book about Abdul Baha. Could you tell us who Abdul Baha is and what's his significance in the Baha'i faith? As I mentioned earlier, the Baha'u'llah was the founder of the Baha'i faith. This is a world religion. It spread to many countries and they have followers all over. Now, after he died in the late 19th century, his son became his successor and he referred to himself as Abdul Baha, meaning the servant of Baha. He was in prison with his father for many years, I think about 40 years. Eventually, in I think year 1907, when the young Turks rebelled against the Ottoman Empire, the political prisoners were released, and he was one of those who were released. In 1912, upon the invitation of an insistence of American believers, because I know there were thousands of Baha'is in America, he agreed to come for a visit. He stayed in America over 200 days, most of it in New York City. And the book that I have written basically deals with his talks, his meetings, his type of people that he came across, some significant stories and activity attending the peace conference in a major uh, gathering, giving the feast in New Jersey, uh, going to Bowery Mission. So the book is really a narrative of Abdul Baha's in America with emphasis on his days in New York. Hussein, what future projects or books would you like to be able to write? Yeah. Somehow at the old age, I don't know where I get all this energy. <laughs> if I would have if I would have put so much effort in my younger days, in my professional life, I'm sure I would have gone much farther than I did. <laughs> Right. But somehow, I think the, the love for heritage and love and legacy and fully involved in this research and writing, and, and it's amazing that Providence has helped within the last few years that I began to work on this project. There has been a number of people who have fully committed themselves to help me, and I'm very grateful, in particular to Mr. Hilary Chapman, uh, he's a wonderful writer. He's doing one, one great help to me. And I've mentioned also other folks like Fiona Jordan, Greg Roberts, like translators and all that. So I'm very lucky man to have these folks around. Mm-hmm. The project I'm working right now on, I've been asked, and it's funny, by a Persian magazine, a scholarly magazine, to write a book about Persian immigration to America and especially Baha'i exodus from Iran, with emphasis on my own personal story, that why did you come to America, even though I came before the revolution, how was the life, let's say, in Iran and other places? So I'm doing research on that subject to show that this massive departure of Persians from Iran as immigrants, and then, of course, large number of Baha'is who have left the country what is the background? Why are they doing this? And why I did this? So that's my new project. Well, I look forward to seeing that published. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Warren. So, Hussein, thank you so much for sharing your work with us. Sure, Warren. It was a pleasure. After our interview concluded, I asked Hussein to send me a recording of him reading an excerpt from his book, Awakening. 
Here is Hussein reading that excerpt. As I mentioned earlier, uh, there was uh, three upheaval took place in Neris. One was in 1850, that included uh, Martin of Bahid, uh, we talk about that. The other one was the uh, upheaval that took place on the top of the mountain in southern part of Neris in 1853, that thousands of Babis and Baha'i men and women were uh, put to death or captured and uh, brought to Shiraz later, more than 700 women and children. And the third one was in 1909. Uh, I would like to read the a passage from my book, Awakening, page 164, that deal with the younger days of the life of Shafi, uh, the author of the diary that uh, we discussed earlier. And I think uh, the great French scholar and orientalist, uh, Nicholas, also has written about this incident. And the story goes like this, that the women and children were carried from the mountain uh, down Sneeris and told Shiraz and uh, Shafi's mother was one of those uh, prisoners. Once out of the mountain they went toward the mill. A 14-year-old boy walked behind his mother with his hand tied to her waist. He asked why he was tied to her. She told him that if the soldiers took him and killed him she wanted to be there so she wouldn't spend the rest of her life wandering and waiting. She carried her other's much younger son in her arms. Following the advice of her husband, which she has given to her, before being killed, she had put on her plainest, coarsest clothes in anticipation of being captured by soldiers. On her younger boy, though, she had accidentally left a hat with little ornament on it. A cavalryman rode up, leaned down, and snatched it off with such a violence that her boy was thrown from her arms. His small body landing on the hard ground some distance from her. She ran to him in a panic and picked him up. He was unconscious. A bald spot where his hair had been torn out by the violent grab. She cradled him in her arms, trying desperately to revive him, kneeling on her ground, enveloping his little body just like she had at his birth when he stopped breathing. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Dr. Hussein Adieh, co-author of the book Awakening, a History of the Babi and Baha'i Faiths in Nariz. You can find this interview and other interviews at www.abahaiperspective.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast at iTunes by searching for A Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i Faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org where you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
world gives me no fear. This fire will burn all the darkness away. I will give it all for you. My. Because you shine, because you shine. 
expression Strengthen the remembrance of thy beauty and perfection He own the grace of thy mercy aided Though he be but a drop Shall become the boundless ocean And the nearest atom which the outpouring of thy loving kindness assisted Shall shine even as the radiant star
from northern forests to the southern fields And I will turn my face to the sun in any place where it rises If I am a lover, I will recognize a rose in any land If I love the roses, I'll accept an offered rose from any
got to walk, walk a little farther till we gather over yonder. We got to walk, walk a little farther than we ever walked before. We got to walk, walk a little farther down that long, glory road. I got it finished yet, get set for more. We got to walk, walk a little farther till we gather over yonder. We got to walk, walk a little farther than we ever walked before. We got to walk, walk a little farther down that long, glory road. I got it finished yet, get set more. Got it finished yet, get set more. This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.